We'll be looking today at verses 6 through 12. The book of 1 Peter is written by the Apostle Peter. Most of us are at least familiar with that name. The Apostle Peter was one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, and uh, he was the leader among them. He was one of the most prominent leaders in the first century church, playing a huge role in helping to get it established throughout the book of Acts. But when we think of Peter, the scenes that likely come to our minds first are not all that flattering, are they? For most of us, anyway. Maybe your first thought of Peter is the powerful preacher on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. But for most of us, our first thought of Peter is betraying Christ on the night of his crucifixion or opening his big mouth yet again and drawing the rebuke of a very patient Savior. Or perhaps you think of him hastily jumping out of a boat to walk on water like Jesus did. And you remember that scene. As we observe Peter's life throughout the Gospels, we see a man under construction. A man who has a long way to go. A man who missed the mark in so many ways, but we also see a man whom the Lord Jesus Christ had shaped through the course of his life into a man of spiritual maturity and strength and conviction and courage. This Peter, who fled at the mere suggestion of a little servant girl on the night Jesus was betrayed, was also crucified for being a preacher of that very gospel. He was a man under construction. Christ had done a great work of sanctification in his life. And of all of the characters in the New Testament, Peter's life gives perhaps the most vivid picture of spiritual growth from start to finish. And of God's sanctifying work in his people. And I suppose the moment in his life that best encapsulates that story, we could say, is that moment when he walked on water toward Jesus. In that moment, Peter found himself in a situation that was way beyond his control. As he kept his eyes on Christ in those moments, he was safe. But as soon as he looked away, as soon as he took his eyes off Christ, he sank. And to know how impossible the situation is, Go to Lake Julian, take a boat out to the middle of it, and jump in. And then push the boat away. And then when you get tired and it's time to get out of the lake and go home, just stand up and walk. There is, I think, a certain lesson for all of us in a scene like that. Because perhaps you feel like you're life is best described in that way. Maybe you feel like the life you're living is best illustrated by a small boat on a storm-tossed sea 
And then Jesus comes along and tells you to get out of the boat and walk on the water. It's impossible, isn't it? It's impossible. It's uncomfortable. It's downright dangerous. And if our eyes are on the turmoil and the danger around us, and if our hope is in our own strength and in our own efforts, then we surely will sink. But if we set our eyes on Christ, if we set our hopes on His sufficient strength, then even in the most humanly impossible situations, we will remain strong. We will remain steadfast, though all the world crumble around us. That's the idea of Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. He speaks of the mountains crashing and the sea crashing and everything in the world falling apart around us and God's people standing firm. That's an illustration of the lesson that Peter is teaching us in the book of 1 Peter. This man is now nearing the end of his life. This is a life that had been full of turmoil and danger, a life that would soon end in execution, all for the sake of Christ and the gospel. And Peter knows that things are only going to get worse. He knows that more and more Christians are going to feel as if they don't belong in this world. He knows that the world is going to continue to marginalize and mistreat them. And in this context, Peter reaches back and he draws from a lifetime of experience and fellowship with the Lord. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes a letter of pastoral counseling to suffering Christians. And he encourages them, and he instructs them in how to live steadfast and godly lives in the midst of a hostile world. Or, to put it another way, how to live with steadfast hope in a foreign land. And with all of this in mind, then, as we consider our own situations today, the state of our world, the mentality of our culture, and the circumstances of our own lives, we find that the book of 1 Peter is relevant not just for those Christians back then, but for us here today. God has preserved His Word here for us so that we will understand that as His people... We are strangers in this world. But even as strangers here, we can live with steadfast, hopeful, joyful, and faithfulness in our lives. And Peter teaches us right here how to do just that. So, as we've been studying 1 Peter, we're still in the opening paragraphs. This is our third weekend. We're still in the introduction. Peter hasn't given any commands yet. But what he is doing is laying the foundation for a steadfast and hopeful life in this foreign land. And the foundation of our hope, the stability that we will find in this world, is not anything we do. Our hope does not rest on anything that we do. 
but rather our hope and stability are built on what we are and who we know. Maybe I should reverse that. It's built on who we know first and then what we are in Him. And so if we think that the best way to handle life in this sinful world is simply to work harder in our own strength, to to hunger down in our own wisdom and effort, or that if we are just good people and if we keep all the rules just the right way, then we will be okay, then we are doomed to fail. And we are doomed to fail miserably because that's just what Peter did. That's the Peter we meet in the Gospels, full of energy, full of supposed courage. But his eyes weren't on Christ. That's the immature Peter. And that approach will lead us to utter failure and despair. Why? Because like walking on water, what Christ is doing in our lives and the life that he has called us to live is not just hard on our own, it's impossible. And while Peter will give specific practical instruction for godly living, and while he will make much of the need to pursue holiness, he begins by emphasizing that all of that effort is useless without the right foundation in place. But with the right foundation in place, Steadfast hope in this world is not only possible, it is inexpressibly joyful. And that's what I want us to see this morning. We've talked about the foundation of our faith in previous weeks. Peter's attention this morning turns to the joy that accompanies that faith, the joy that comes from that salvation. He lays the foundation for steadfast hope in a foreign land by reminding suffering Christians of what they are and who they know. In other words, he points our attention to the most important thing, the fuel that drives everything else, and it's Christ. It's Christ. And that's not just a nice word. That's not just a trendy concept. This is the foundation of everything we are and everything we do as Christians. It is and the work that he is doing in us. So, as we saw in verses 1 and 2, Peter reminds us that we are chosen by the Father from before the foundation of the world to be his precious people. We are saved and justified by the death and resurrection of Christ alone. We are sanctified by the Holy Spirit. We are held fast by the sovereign grace and peace of this triune God every moment of our lives. And then in verses 3 through 5, Peter continues by proclaiming the mercy and the hope and the heavenly inheritance and the sovereign preservation that belongs to all of God's people. And now as we come to verses 6 through 12, we're still in the same opening section of the book. The theme is still the same. And in these verses, Peter continues to pile on the glorious truths of who we are in Christ and how that changes the way we look at our circumstances and how we live in this world. You see, if we are in Christ, we have received not just a new destiny, 
That's glorious enough. But we have received grace for a glorious and joyful life here and now. Now, Don't misunderstand me. I'm not a televangelist. I'm not a health and wealth and prosperity preacher. This is not saying that if you are in Christ, you will live your best life now. Because most assuredly, Jesus says you will not. In fact, remember the whole context of what Peter is writing is suffering. What I'm telling you is, if we are in Christ, we have a joy and a settledness and a peace and a grace and hope that transcends far above what we face in this world. These verses, Peter acknowledges the reality of suffering, but he also speaks of joy. And this joy that is not just alongside the suffering as if we shift back and forth from one to the other. The joy he describes is joy that is in the midst of the suffering or even because of the suffering. On the basis of the glorious truths of verses 1 through 5. In verses 6 through 12, Peter highlights the joy that this salvation brings in this life because it's rooted in Christ. Our text today is verses 6 through 12, but I want to start in verse 3 so that we see the, the whole picture of what's going on here. Follow along with me as I read. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope, to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, You love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ, and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This passage speaks of the joy of our salvation 
and the greatness of our salvation. And that is to be the focus of God's people as they live lives in an unstable and foreign world. Let's consider, first of all, the joy of our salvation that Peter talks about in verses 6 through 9. Everything Peter has laid out to this point is meant to lead us to joy. Christians are not people who are just slugging it out in this world. Yeah, we have moments where that's really what it feels like we're doing. And I'm not at all suggesting that Christians ought to be smiling through gritted teeth all the time, just faking something and acting as if everything's just all wonderful and glorious. Because sometimes life is truly hard. That's what Peter's saying. But there's a joy that the Christians know even in the midst of that sorrow, of that grief. And what Peter is writing here is meant for Christians who are suffering, that they would find a divine joy in the midst of that suffering that will carry them through. This joy is something he describes in verse 8 as inexpressible. This is a joy that is so deep and so satisfying and so foreign to human wisdom that words just do not have the power to convey what this joy is really like. It is a settled contentment of sorts, an inward delight that exists even in the harshest of circumstances. And it's a joy that belongs to all of God's people, not just the super Christians, as if there were such a thing. Every one of us has access to this joy in Christ. And on the basis of this joy, as we are anchored firmly to the joy of the Lord in our salvation, then we are able, as Peter says in verse 13, to prepare our minds for action and to live with steadfast hope no matter what this life throws at us. So what kind of joy is this? Where does this joy come from? We already know, generally, we've covered that. It comes from Christ to His people. But what does that mean? Let's dig into that a little bit, because Peter digs into it a little bit in verses 6 through 9. And he gives us five aspects of our salvation that produce unspeakable joy in the lives of Christians, even Christians who suffer. What is it about our salvation that brings us this inexpressible joy? Well, first, we have joy because of our eternal inheritance. Because of our eternal inheritance. Peter says at the very beginning of verse 6, In this you rejoice. That phrase, you rejoice, that's kind of, overshadowing everything in this text. That's the context here. Here is your joy, and it begins in this. Well, in what? That points us back again to verses 1 through 5, where Peter has already proclaimed salvation through Christ, new birth, living hope, eternal inheritance that he is guarding and preserving for us in heaven. And so this is where it always begins. Do you know Christ? Have you received this eternal inheritance? Have you repented of your sin and have you placed your faith 
for eternal hope in Christ alone. That's where this begins. Have you received that eternal inheritance? But this is, for the Christian, not just a past experience. This is not just a fact from the past. It's not just some dry theological truth. Knowing that we have a glorious and heavenly inheritance stored up for us, protected, guarded by Christ himself, is the greatest news for God's people. It is the cause of great rejoicing. That's the phrase here. In this, you greatly rejoice. Far beyond any other rejoicing you might find in this world. I love looking out the window and seeing the sun. As we drove up from uh, visiting family yesterday, Daniel and I were in the car. We looked and we saw this crystal clear blue sky. It was gorgeous. We were looking up over the mountaintops and I said, what a beautiful sky that is. It'll look even better when the trees are green again. Right? And it only gets better. We look out and we see that. We, we take a breath of fresh spring air. And if it doesn't make us sneeze, it makes us smile. And we rejoice at the changing of the seasons. We rejoice at the beauty of God's creation. We rejoice at achieving a milestone in life. We rejoice at the accomplishments of our children. We rejoice in receiving a gift or getting over a sickness. We rejoice at many things in this life, but nothing causes us more joy than to think on our heavenly inheritance that we have in Christ. In this, you greatly rejoice. Why? Because if we have a heavenly inheritance stored up and protected for us in heaven, that means that Christ's work on the cross was complete and effective. And not only that, it means that he is risen from the dead, as we said this morning. And that because of that, we are saved in him from sin and from its penalty. That means that we belong to him. That means that we are destined to live in eternity in heaven, in his presence. It means that we will be perfectly sanctified and glorified that we are perfectly justified in His sight. That in His presence, our sin is fully removed and our joy is forever complete. Listen, there is nothing on this earth that compares with that. There is nothing on this earth that even brings you close to achieving anything like that, and you know it. That is what Peter is explaining in these verses. He's laying this out with a clear call to all of his people. Rejoice, Christian. Whatever you're facing today, rejoice. Because you belong to God. And what he has begun in you, he will complete. And then with that eternal inheritance in mind, Peter continues... And he speaks of the joy that we have now because of our proven faith. The rest of verse 6 and the beginning of verse 7 don't really seem to be all that encouraging unless you consider them in the context of the rest of this chapter. Peter says at the end of verse 6, Though now for a little while, if necessary, 
you have been grieved by various trials. Here, Peter acknowledges the reality of suffering. Yeah, it's real. Life is hard. And it's often harder when you're a Christian. And it may very well get harder after today. As you go along through your life, don't expect things to get better. Almost is, is what Peter seems to be saying here. And we take a little comfort from that, don't we? We take a little comfort knowing that the Apostle Peter is acknowledging that the Christian life is marked by suffering. The last thing we need when we are in the heat of a trial is for somebody to minimize it or deny it, right? Ah, it's not that bad. Really? It is for me. The last thing we need is for somebody just to, without even listening to where we're at and what we're facing, just to start barking out orders. Well, I'll do this, 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 and this, and it'll all be fine. We don't need that. Wives, have you ever gotten that from your husbands? Where you're feeling bad and he's just barking out, well, do this and this and this and it'll get better. Wives, you ever received that from your husbands? Husbands, you ever received that from your wives? We, we know that doesn't go over well. We need compassion. Peter's showing compassion here. Yes, you have suffered. So have I. Peter acknowledges the reality of the trials, of their suffering, and of their real grief. But as he does, he also presents these trials and these griefs as the context, the stage, if you will, for the Christian's joy. The platform from which joy will be cultivated in a Christian's life. From which joy will be produced and experienced and displayed in the Christian's life. Almost as if he's to say, you won't know the joy if you haven't also known the trials. It seems paradoxical, right? That doesn't make sense to us. How is that possible? We greatly rejoice in the context of the suffering because of the suffering? How is that possible? Again, not by worldly wisdom, not by worldly solutions, but by remembering the truth of who Christ is what he has done for us and what he has promised to us. So what we see in verses 1 through 5. And when we are focused on that, we're placing our hopes in him, then now we have a whole new perspective on our trials in this life, don't we? We understand them in a whole new light. We see them completely differently. We start to understand that these trials are not forever and that these trials are not meaningless. Not one of them. That is what Peter says here about our various trials. And by saying various trials, he's including the whole spectrum of hardships here. He's not just talking about those who are burned at the stake for their faith, although that's included. From the harsh persecution and martyrdom of our faith to the simple frustrations of trying to live a godly life in a sinful world. The whole spectrum is represented here. And however that might manifest itself in our lives at this moment, we all can rejoice greatly because we know, as Peter says here, that they are only for a little while. That's what he says. 
They will not last forever. They are temporary. And remember that in comparison to an eternal inheritance. So, we are reminded in the midst of our suffering that the trials we face in this life are the worst it's ever going to be. But there's more. Not only does Peter tell us these trials are temporary, he also tells us they're purposeful. He says, if necessary. The implication is, they are. That means there is a purpose to the trials that we face. And the only trials that we face are the ones that are necessary. Necessary for what, you say? I'm glad you asked. Look at the first part of verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. Let's stop there. This is the purpose of the trials. This is the goal to which these trials are working in our lives. Peter speaks of tested genuineness. What does that mean? Those words mean they have, they have the idea of proving or strengthening or maturing. He uses the illustration of gold being tested by fire. That refers to the process of melting gold in a furnace, burning up and separating out the impurities. And the result of that is that it improves the value of the gold, it purifies it, and it strengthens it. Trials don't make us more valuable to God than we were before. Every illustration breaks down somewhere. But the idea here is purifying, strengthening, and maturing. And much more than gold, Peter says, on a much greater scale, is the purifying value of trials in the lives of God's people. Gold perishes. But the tested genuineness of our faith is far more precious. So we rejoice in our suffering. We praise God through the tears. We find joy in the agony. Why? Not because we like pain. Not because we're more brave than other people naturally but because we see that God is purposely using every trial to mortify sin in our lives, to grow us in Christ-like character, to strengthen our faith, and to produce true joy in us as He prepares us for a much greater fulfillment and a much greater eternal joy in His presence. Before we go on to the next point, I just want to mention, if you read the works of Charles, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, you'll find a lot of this kind of theme going on. Spurgeon. You know who Spurgeon is? The Prince of Preachers. 19th century Puritan, right? some would say. Powerful preacher. From the age of 19, had a, an influence beyond 
just what was right around him. His sermons were published every, every week. I mean, this man is one of the greats in church history. He's a man who for most of his life suffered physically with a number of different health problems. This is a man who even suffered from depression at times. He was a man. He was a man under construction just like everyone else. He was a man who was also known for being incredibly joyful. He loved to laugh. He loved to have a good time. He had a great sense of humor. How does that happen? He recognized that there was value in his physical suffering. And he knew and he experienced and he testified of the fact that that suffering drew him closer to Christ. It's the same hope, it's the same joy, it's the same confidence that allows a martyr to sing while he's burning at the stake. That's the same joy and the same confidence that strengthens and fuels every Christian every day of his life. As we remember, we are marching through this land as foreigners to our eternal home. I don't think it's any mistake then. I don't think it's any uh, random thing that Spurgeon loved the Pilgrim's Progress. It's said that he read Pilgrim's Progress more than 100 times throughout his life. Why? Because that's how he saw the Christian life. Or pilgrims walking through a foreign land, suffering at times, making bad decisions at times, constantly needing to be encouraged and put back on the track and, and saved from uh, falling into the mud and from the enemies that are all around trying to, to turn us off the path. Constantly resetting our gaze on the celestial city. If you've never read Pilgrim's Progress, you need to read it. And not just part one, part two as well. You need to read it. You need to read it more than once. I wish I could spend the rest of the sermon on Pilgrim's Progress, but I better not. Take that as an assignment and an encouragement that will illustrate exactly what we're talking about here. That brings us to the end of verse 7, where we find joy not just in our eternal inheritance, not just in our proven faith, but also in our promised glory. Peter says in verse 7 that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is the end result of our faith. That is the end result of a faith that has been tested and proven and has remained faithful. It is all brought to a glorious conclusion at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is when he returns and we see him face to face. You realize that, Christian. You're going to stand face to face with Jesus. And when you do, you will be transformed to be like Him because you will see Him as He is. And everything that weighs you down here and now will be gone forever. But when He talks about praise and glory and honor, whose praise and honor and glory is He talking about? His or ours? 
And if you coyly answer yes, you would be correct, because that's a trick question. Because it is both. Yes, it's speaking ultimately of the praise and glory and honor of God and, and His Son, Jesus Christ, because of the work that He has done to bring us to that point. This is all His work, but this is also speaking of the praise and glory and honor that will belong to all who are in Christ when we see His face. It's talking about our glorification, which is the completion of our salvation that God has begun in us. Those whose hope is in Christ alone, whose faith has been tested and purified, who are held faithful by God Himself to the very end, those are the ones who will hear those marvelous words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Master. That is our promised glory. That is the culmination of a proven faith. And in this we rejoice. And with that rejoicing and that glory in mind, God enables us not just to rejoice in the destination, but to rejoice in the journey, however hard it might be. We understand that concept when we consider an Olympian training to win a gold medal, right? Sometimes we even understand this concept when we consider a road trip where we are attempting to enjoy the scenery and the attractions along the way in addition to enjoying the destination. How imperfectly that works in this world. It works perfectly regarding our faith. We have the ability to enjoy not just the destination, but the journey along the way because of this grace, because of this work of God in our hearts. And that brings us next to verse 8 where we find joy, sort of the culmination of all this, the focal point of all this. Our joy is in knowing Christ. Let's sort of transcends the rest of the points. It, it overshadows all of them. But Peter continues in verse 8, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That concept, you love Him, you believe in Him. That's trust. Love and trust. That's what makes a healthy relationship. Right? Our joy is rooted in knowing Christ, in the love and the trust that we have for Him. But why does Peter talk about the fact that they have not seen Him? Well, I think he's highlighting the fact that he had seen them, seen Him. And so you would expect Peter's faith to be very strong. He saw Jesus face to face. And Peter's saying, you haven't seen him, and this, this exists in you too. Peter is helping them understand the fact that the fact that they have not seen Jesus and that we have not seen Jesus physically does not in any way hinder our relationship with him or our ability to know him and rejoice in him. 
After all, Peter was there. When Jesus said to Thomas in John chapter 20, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. What is the total summary of our joy in this world? It's not having every circumstance work out just perfectly. And it's not even having Jesus standing in this room with us right here. Physically. We haven't seen him, but we still know him. We've seen his work in our lives. We've experienced his salvation. What is the Christian's greatest joy? What is the summary of eternal life that Jesus himself explains? This is eternal life that they know you. That they know God. That we know Christ, our Savior. And our relationship with Christ is marked by these two key characteristics, love and trust. Peter says you love him and you believe in him. Those are the two greatest experiences of any healthy relationship, right? Just consider the starry-eyed wonder at a young couple that has fallen deeply in love. Relationship based on love. Now, maybe that's infatuation, but stick with me. Okay? Consider the strength of a married couple that has been together for 50 years. And the love that has grown and developed and strengthened through those 50 years. And when it comes to trust, consider a stormy night and a small child running out of his bedroom at the sound of the thunder and crawling into bed with mom and dad. There's peace there, isn't there? There's a strong relationship there because there's trust. The storm is still going on. Nothing has changed outside the house. You see, Peter is explaining the effects, the nature of the relationship that we have with Christ, even in the context of a foreign land, of a sinful world. It's a relationship of love and trust. And so it is a relationship of joy and safety. Joy belongs to us in the midst of the suffering. And we know Christ because we love Him. Safety belongs to us no matter how dangerous the world gets because our hope is in Christ. And He is eminently love-worthy and trustworthy. And so we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Ours is a joy that is beyond what words can convey. That's what he's saying there. And our minds are occupied by the glory that is still to come. We have joy because of the anticipation of eternal glory. Think about anticipation for a moment. Is it not true in this world that anticipation is often greater than the experience itself? Right? Some of you are smiling because you've experienced that. You know. The excitement building up to Christmas, kids, is better than some of the gifts you get. Right? You can wink. I won't tell your parents. You 
We know the inexpressible joy of anticipation, but can you imagine the inexpressible joy of anticipation only to be followed up by an infinitely greater fulfillment? That never fades. This is what that joy is that is inexpressible and filled with glory. As we look to Christ and consider our glorious inheritance, our hearts leap within us with anticipation, and we don't even know the half of it yet. That is just the beginning. When we see the fulfillment with our own eyes, when we actually see Christ face to face, it will blow us away. There will be no letdown. In fact, it will be an ever-increasing joy. And we'll never know the end of it. And all of that is to the glory of God alone who has made it happen from start to finish. And with all of that in mind, we see in verse 9 that we have joy in our present salvation. Peter says, obtaining the outcome of our faith, the salvation of your soul. There's a hint of future salvation here that eventually we will, out, we will obtain the outcome of our faith. But that word obtaining can be rendered in more detail by saying presently receiving for yourselves. That's the idea in the original language there. There is a here and now Fulfillment. There is a here and now focus to what Peter is saying in this text. As our eternal inheritance is secure and our proven mature faith is promised and our relationship with Christ is trustworthy, so our present protection and preservation in this world is guaranteed. Did you catch that? Your present preservation in this world is as certain as your salvation is in Christ. And I think when we read this, the words of the Apostle Paul from Romans chapter 8 are certainly appropriate for us here. There is therefore now no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. We sang that this morning. I love, my chains fell off. My heart was free. That's the song of a Christian. Paul goes on in Romans 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to this purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. All right, that's the beginning of our salvation. To be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he also or those who he called, he also justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. That's the end of our salvation. 
from beginning to end, we are held steadfast in Christ's care. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, God is for us, who can be against us? Christians, stop getting worked up about the same things the rest of the world is getting worked up about. Your hope, your joy does not rest in Washington. It doesn't rest in Raleigh. It doesn't rest in the Buncombe County Courthouse. It doesn't rest in any level of politics in this world. It doesn't rest in how much the world likes you or how easy your life is. That's not where your hope is. And though everything in the world conspires to make your life miserable and to even exterminate you, if God is for you, nothing can stand against you. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. You're still on his mind. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? Shall distress? Or persecution? Or famine? Or nakedness? Or danger? Or sword? Paul answers with a resounding, No! In all of these things, not in spite of all these things, not these things won't exist, they won't be successful. He says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, that pretty much covers everything, right? Will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Because of this, God's people are joyful people. Yeah, we sorrow. Yeah, we suffer. But we also rejoice because we know that in Christ the best is yet to come. So rejoice, Christian, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, I was planning for us to study all the way through verse 12. We're not going to get there. It's fine. I think this is a good place for us to stop because we're going into the Lord's Supper together. And I think that is a fitting way for us to conclude a study like this. As we begin to look at the Lord's Supper, and as we bring this study to a close, the summary application is very simple. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Christians, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Remember who your God is. Suffering saints, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, 
Do you think he has forgotten you now? Do you think your suffering is random and useless? Remember who your God is. Remember what your God has done for you. He has chosen you. He has adopted you. He has justified you and guaranteed you an eternal inheritance. Is he not able to deliver? He can and he will because he is God and he has said so. As you face the trials and agonies of this life, rejoice in the Lord. He is molding you into mature Christ-like character and he is leading you to your imperishable heavenly inheritance. Christian, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. But understand this. This promise, this joy, only belongs to those who truly follow Christ. To those who are his children. And friends, if you've never come to a point of placing your faith in Jesus Christ, these promises are not yours. But they can be. By faith in Christ alone. My friends, do you know Jesus? Have you turned away from your sin? And have you received God's free gift of salvation? By faith in Jesus Christ alone. If you're not a Christian this morning, then my plea to you is the same as it was to the Christians. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. And you will be saved. Let's pray together.